This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Simon & Schuster, publishers of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram by Sarah Fryer, a behind-the-scenes investigation of how Instagram became one of the most popular and influential social media platforms. No Filter is available now wherever books are sold. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 411 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Stephen Kotler. He's the author of the novel The Angle Quickest for Flight, as well as several nonfiction books, including Tomorrowland, Our Journey from Science Fiction to Science Fact, and A Small Furry Prayer, Dog Rescue, and the Meaning of Life. He's also written three books about the future, Bold, Abundance, and The Future is Faster Than You Think, with Peter Diamandis, founder of the XPRIZE Foundation. Stephen is also an award-winning journalist, a leading expert on human performance, and co-founder of the Flow Genome Project. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new science fiction novel, Last Tango in Cyberspace. And today's show is brought to you by No Filter, the inside story of Instagram by Bloomberg News reporter Sarah Fryer. And here's a description of the book. It says... In 2010, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger released a photo-sharing app called Instagram with one simple but irresistible feature. It would make anything you captured through your phone look more beautiful. In less than two years, it caught Facebook's attention. Mark Zuckerberg bought the company for a historic $1 billion. The co-founders stayed on, trying to maintain Instagram's beauty, brand, and cachet, considering their app a separate company within the social networking giant. But just as Instagram was about to reach 1 billion users, Zuckerberg, once supportive of the founder's autonomy, began to feel threatened by Instagram's success. No Filter draws on unprecedented access with Instagram's founders, executives, and employees, as well as with celebrities such as Anna Winter of Vogue and Kris Jenner of the Kardashian-Jenner empire. No Filter examines our fraught relationship with technology, our desire for perfection, and the battle within tech for its most valuable commodity, our attention. Vanity Fair reporter Nick Bilton calls the book deeply reported and beautifully written, and the New York Times calls it a sequel to The Social Network. So again, the book is called No Filter by Sarah Fryer, and that's Fryer, F-R-I-E-R. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Stephen Kotler. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so how did you first get interested in science fiction? Oh God! Um, I, 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 you know, I, when I was a little kid, well, my best friends—I was just your typical kind of punk geek kid. So you know, I went through my dinosaur phase, and I went through my comic book phase, and all that stuff. But I had a friend, my friend's older brother, when I was in seventh grade, he was like in ninth grade, and he was writing sort of, I guess, what we would now call fan fiction sci-fi books. And he just had every sci-fi book you could possibly imagine. I just started anything he was reading, I was devouring. So what, what were some of the fan- sci- uh, it was, At that point, it was, it was anything from like, you know, Heinlein, Clark, um, I, I, what Tolkien, of course, um, all sort of the, the greatest hits. Um, I don't, it, and I think nothing really stuck. Like really stuck until we got to Neuromancer. And Neuromancer is really sort of what like really opened my eyes to kind of the possibility of science fiction and, and cyberpunk and was really, you know, what caught my attention more than anything. 
So sort of what stage of life were you at when you first encountered Neuromancer? Neuromancer? I, uh, I, I, it, I was right out of college. I was actually ski bumming in Aspen, Colorado. And I, I remember I met Hunter Thompson, uh, the, the, the journalist writer, and I was reading Neuromancer. I started the same day I met Hunter. Um, that's all I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was 1989 was the date was the year was that was what happened was there any story behind meeting hunter s thompson so it, it, so this is it's going to sound like a crazy story um and it's going to sound very exceptional you should know that like if you talk to people who lived in aspen around the time this happened these stories are everywhere so i need to i need to say that but i was literally so i worked at a bartender at a place called the hotel jerome that hunter was famous for hanging out at and I was down, they had a flight of stairs that were sort of like under the bar and there was three phones in a row and a cigarette machine at the end of the phones. And I was talking to my girlfriend who was back in college and she said, so have you met Hunter yet? And I'm on the phone and as I'm saying no, Hunter Thompson comes down the stairs wearing, I don't remember what else, but like me, this is like in the middle of dead of winter and he's got like thigh high wading boots on and he walks up to me and I'm just like gobsmacked. I'm just staring at him. I'm like, Oh my freaking God, it's Hunter Thompson. And he grabs the phone out of my hand, screams into it, passes the phone back to me, buys cigarettes and goes back upstairs to the bar. And which is the point I was like, uh, Beth, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have to call you back. <laughs> I hung up the phone. And all I can tell you is went back to the bar and he was there. Um, with a actually a, a large Samoan or Tongan man, um, and he writes about a large Samoan man or Tongan man in, in Fear and Loathing. I have no idea if it was the same same guy, but all I can tell you is there was a woman. Hotel Jerome Bar gets tourists, and there was just some absolute woman who had no idea. What, I don't know what she could possibly think. The bar was filled with people. Hunter was clearly the weirdest looking dude in the bar. Well, maybe I was, but <laughs> he, he was, he was pretty weird looking too, um, at the time. And she asked him to take a photo of his family, of her family. And he, she passed it him the camera and I, we were like, everybody in the bar sort of stopped and like, were, like looked over at this because they were like, Oh my God, what just happened? And Hunter jumped up on top of the table of the table he was sitting at. He was standing on the table, pointing the camera at the, woman screaming and her she had kids there who were just terrified of this smile lady smile for the russians smile for the russians over and over and over again <laughs> that's my only hunter thompson story but that that was how i met that was the other time i met him and uh i, I used to know uh his assistant um and she used to she had a small son and she used to have to hide her son from hunter because when she wasn't around he would take him into the backyard and teach him how to blow up cars and things <laughs> So, so you're, so you're watching this and you're like, this seems cool. I should be a journalist. No, I like journalism was mostly accidental. I, by the time I got out of grad school, I had worked in advertising, uh, before grad school, I had long dreadlocks and earrings and was a punk rocker. And, um, at the, this was at a time long before like MTV, when M cable spread across America and MTV went with it it made it okay to have like weird hair sort of everywhere. This was, this was before that era. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't yet safe not to sort of look like everybody else. And I had worked in advertising and then they actually, and I was working for foot coat and belting on Taco Bell campaigns. Um, so I was doing real actual work in the world 
And then they brought me into to a meeting and took one look at me and there was no, they just wouldn't hire me. Like it was really clear based on that. And I came, so when I got out of grad school, I knew I couldn't get a job in advertising at all. And I, the secret was I was writing books. I was writing novels while working my first novel. I was like, well, how do I get paid, you know, to sort of have adventures and, and write novels? And this was the nineties was this a great explosion in magazines. People, you know, magazines, which were the internet sort of before the internet and 90, suddenly everybody, you know, the punk zine movement of the seventies and the eighties sort of taught everybody you could do this yourself. And then the software, the publishing software that started to show up in the early nineties really allowed this massive explosion in, in kind of magazines. So I got in and those, those were, you know, they were run by weirdos. It wasn't sort of like the New York magazine mafia anymore. It was, you know, punk rock people on the West coast doing really, you know, fun, weird, crazy stuff. And I just, I saw that and I was like, well, I want to do this. And I, um, what literally happened is I was in a meeting at foot cone and building with a, with a guy who I thought was going to hire me. And, uh, he wouldn't hire me and he threw me a copy of a magazine called Bikini that nobody remembers anymore, but it was sort of like the precursor magazine to details, Maxim and FHM and all those magazines. Um, and I was the first issue and I opened it up and I read, uh, an interview with Tim Roth by a guy named Artie Nelson, who later became a good a friend of mine. And I, I stole the copy of the magazine for, I walked out of the office. Mike, the guy I was meeting with said, I got to go to a meeting. I'll be back you know, wait here. Um, and I knew he wasn't going to hire me. And I just took, he said, read this. And I literally, I stole this magazine, went home and called the editor in chief every hour on the hour for four days straight until he took my call. And I, yeah, I got a break from there, <laughs> but that's, well, what I, that's I, how I got the magazines. Yeah. Cause I was, I was seeing that you, you used to work for wired and Monto 2000. I was just kind of wondering what that scene was like at that time. Um, I never, I, I never wrote for Mondo. Maybe I wrote for Mondo. Oh, so there was a reference to it in, um, in the novel. Yeah, there was a reference to it. Uh, I know all those guys, like, are you serious? And, and Jared Lanier, and I, and I knew them a little bit, not Jared, but, uh, are you back then? Um, Ken. And, uh, uh, I definitely wrote for Wired, but it's funny. I was, uh, I did a, I did a thing with Jane Metcalf, the, obviously the founder of Wired, co-founder of Wired, uh, last week. And we were talking about it. And I got to Wired right after Jane sold it. So I got brought in, I think in 2000 or 99, right in there. And, and so what was that like at that time? Was it like, cause I would imagine it would be pretty exciting with all the, Cyberpunk was, stuff going on. I always, I always say this and I'll say that I said, I mean, it was, so it was the greatest writing education in the history of the world. It was phenomenal for a couple of reasons. One was wired was, uh, especially then the center of the universe. So they were very, 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 very sure. Like they didn't care who you were, how big of a name writer you were. They didn't want you to write like, I had gotten people that loved the way I wrote. So I sort of got away with a lot of stuff basically as a journalist, um, stylistically for a long time. And I came into Wired and they, like, they could give a shit. They were like, we don't <laughs> care about that. We want the best Wired story you can write, not the best, like whatever it is that you're doing. And it really forced me to learn how to write incredible. It forced me to learn how to write really high quality journalistic articles at a level I hadn't. I don't think I had known before. And the other thing back at that time, I, you could never do this to writers these days, but back then you would, I, it was not unusual for me to do six months of nonstop research on a story 
And it ended up getting crunched down into a 400 word front of the book magazine article. And with six months worth of research crammed into 400 words, it was so difficult and so insane to get stories approved and get them through um, that it just, it forced you to be great at your craft more than anything else. It was really exciting. It was really fun. It was a fun time to be in and around San Francisco and that whole, in that whole world. Um, but I really remember it as the place that taught me almost more than anything else how to really write. Were you meeting a lot of other, you know, sort of science fiction fans and science fiction writers and futurists and stuff? No, not then um, at all, uh, which was odd, too. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I knew, you know, there, were, there, there, was, a, there was sort of a, a group of writers who would always get together every Tuesday night in San Francisco, and it was... Poe Bronson was there, someone who, who was, you know, an enormously, still is, but an enormously talented writer who did some early work for Wired and a whole bunch of other people. Brad Wieners was one of the editors. He would come. And it was interesting because it was a whole bunch of people who were not totally, completely obsessed with technology who were writing for Wired. We were much more interested in kind of the way technology was shaping culture, which I think you, you see is still my interest in, in Last Tango in a sense, um, in, the, in my most recent, uh, cyberpunk book. Yeah. And that, that seemed, that seemed, that was Neil Stevenson was part of that crowd. I never got to know him, but he was another person who, th- there was an interest in technology, but it was also, you know, it was very Gibson-y. We were interested in what it was doing to culture. Yeah. When did you meet Peter Demandis? Was that around that same time? Yeah, I met Peter. Uh, we argue about this. We think <laughs> we met in 97 or 98. And uh, I wrote the first major article anybody had written on the X Prize. And it was a really, the story is kind of interesting. I had been in the uh, Black Rock Desert, which is where they have Burning Man, but it wasn't Burning Man time. I was, they were trying to drive a car. Craig Breedlove was trying to drive a car through the sound barrier and he was up against this team from Britain and the team from Britain had like this souped up Batmobile that was insane. And they had <laughs> half of the mechanics in the Royal British air force working on this thing. And it was, I mean, it was like the full might of Britain was behind this car and Craig Breedlove was literally like a dude and a bunch of guys in a garage and it was a total David versus Goliath story. And Craig Breedlove had a head engineer, a guy named uh, Desir Molnar, who had, actually became a very close friend of mine. And it was Desir uh, made it very, very clear to me that, and a lot of other engineers there that it was harder to drive a car through the sound barrier on the surface of the Earth than it was to put a spaceship into low Earth orbit. And this was just a thing that everybody was sort of saying around the Black Rock Desert. And at the end of that assignment, my habit was always, I'd find the most interesting person I could meet on an assignment and ask them for the name of the most interesting person in the world that they knew of doing something cool, right? I was hunting my next story. And Desiree said, oh, there's this crazy dude who just wants to put up $10 million for anybody who can build a private spaceship. And I think when this is done, I want to go try to work for him. His name is Peter Diamandis. And I went, oh, my God, that sounds insane. And I called him. And at the time, nobody would write about the story because if you called, as I did for the story, NASA or every major aerospace uh, contractor in the world and said, hey, can a, can a you know small team of people or an individual 
put a rocket into space. They would, they all said the exact same thing, which was no, no way. It's not possible. NASA said, God, if you were to do it, it would take, you know, 10,000 engineers, which is what we needed and cost billions and billions of dollars. There's no way a small team can do this. Not going to happen. And I had just been in the desert and all these people that said, Hey, it's easier to, you know, put a rocket into space than drive across the sound barrier. And while Craig Breedlove lost that race, it was very, very close and it really came down to their tires and they ran out of money and they kept burning through tires faster than they could repair them. And, but so it was a doable thing. And I was like, wow, these guys almost did it. So I think this, this is possible. So where nobody else wanted to write about Peter, I thought, Hey, this is possible. And I liked him also. I thought he was crazy and passionate and, and really fun and really, really smart. Um, and, it, we just became friends from I that point you, forward. I heard you say you also had another sort of science fiction friend, I think, uh, Burke Sharpless, that you met in college. Yeah. Yeah. But I've known Burke for forever. Uh, we went back, we go back to college. Yeah. Um, he's now doing Lost in Space. But as you know, he's done a lot of other stuff. I mean, were you talking about science fiction with, with Peter and Burke? Oh, yeah. And like, what kinds of conversations were you having? Burke and I would talk science fiction a lot. Um, a lot. And, uh, we, a lot, we have very fun. So if you like lost in space, for example, is Burke's trained as a philosopher. Um, I want to say he wrote his undergraduate thesis on Kant. Um, I think that's right. It could have been Hegel, but I'm pretty sure it's Kant. Um, and so, you know, when Burke does, uh, lost in space, they're all sort of philosophical morality plays. Um, in a sense, he's doing like the fantastic four trying to solve philosophical puzzles. So we would have conversations about science fiction, but those were the kinds of conversations we were having. Like, hey, they're doing this thing here to get at this hard idea. A lot of what we talked about is um, what I thought was a problem created in, in literature across the board, science fiction and otherwise by Thomas Pynchon in Gravity's Rainbow. And I think Pynchon had pushed language as kind of far and as hard as you possibly could push it um, before communication entirely breaks down in an attempt to convey really hard ideas and really complicated emotions. And it, that's the, those were the kinds of discussions we were having. And I, what, what caught everybody's attention, but really caught our attention about William Gibson more than anybody else, I think was he seemed to be able to have those kinds of really hard discussions with a lot less words than other people, and he was able to communicate much better. But he did it. He solved it by going into kind of a noir style, which turns out was one really – it made somehow something about the noir style and the cyberpunk style allows you to talk about much more complicated philosophical ideas in a way that doesn't lose the reader's attention is actually, you know, brings them into the conversation and teaches them stuff. And then you can have that conversation at a different level. And we, so we talk about that kind of thing more than we would talk about, Oh my God, did you read X, Y, or Z? I've now I mean, I'm wishing I'm sitting in my other office because I have my science fiction shelf in my other office and I could be glancing at the books and just talking, talking to you more about <laughs> actual books, but it's not, I, I don't have a mnemonic in front of me. I'm whiffing yeah. on that. I apologize. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned, I think, that you sort of intended Last Tango in cyberspace to, to for for Burke that he that he was going to adapt it. Is that right? We had talked about it. We had talked about it for a while, um, and he got sucked into Lost in Space. Um, 
we've been we've been wanting to work on something uh together for for a really long time and it was sort of built f- for Burke though it's an inter- it I wrote it in a way that doesn't exactly fit the way he thinks about problems it would be interesting to see him do it it's definitely got enough darkness for him um but it it's not quite as he like he's a little more clear cut i think in certain things I mean, when you were talking about how you wrote it in sort of a noir style, one thing that really jumped out at me is you use this construction a lot, which is very rare in other writers, but it appears pretty much on every multiple times on every page in, in your book where it'll, somebody else, it'll be a dialogue. It'll be like, okay, comma, putting down his coffee. Um, do you know what I'm talking? Am I being mm-hmm. clear, yeah. clear there? Yeah, little clauses. Yeah. Did you, uh, I was just curious, like, if you were doing, like, pick that up. Um, consciously at some point, or is, is there another writer you saw who did that or was kind of, where did that come from? That probably came from more than maybe Raymond Chandler himself, um, a little bit, but, and I will say, I think I overused that in last hang. I'm writing a sequel to last Tango right now. And I'm, I'm paying a lot of attention to that because I think like I think it's great but as you pointed out it's on every page and I think it's a it's a little much because obviously words are getting dropped out of clauses yeah I don't know I thought it was cool and stylish it it did have yeah kind of a Chandler vibe to it to me he was a big influence on me though it's very uh it's and Pynchon also right I mean he you know he when I one of the things I was looking at when I was writing when I was writing Last Tango I was spending a lot of time uh, William Gibson's pattern recognition because I, he, it was a quiet story. It was a quieter story with a slow build. And that's when I wrote my first novel, Angle Quickest for Flight, uh, which is sort of a, it's one fantasy and sci-fi awards. Um, though I, I tend to think of it as a kind of like American magical realism more than anything else. But, um, that book got, the plot got really far away from me. I think when you write really big plots, um, and I think this, this shows up in a lot of science fiction as well, it's really easy for the plot to get away from you. You set up things in the first half of the book, and by the end of the book, you've like, there's so many things that you've set up in the first half of the book, there's no way to bring it all back together and tie it together neatly in a way that's deeply satisfying to either the author or the, or the reader, I think. Um, and so I was trying really hard to keep control of the plot in Last Tango, and I wanted to see if I could write, you know, a cyberpunk thriller, basically, without blood and guts and gore, you know, in every scene. Um, I, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, of Richard K. Morgan, and I'm a re- big fan of those books, but they get so damn bloody, um, for me. And I was, so I was trying to, I was trying to do the same thing, but not have that much Violence. So I was paying a lot of attention to pattern recognition. I was reading, I was, and I was looking at books like Inherent Vice, which was a later Thomas Pynchon novel. Um, that's also, uh, where he it very much is kind of like com- a little comedic noir. And it's not that I was taking that style, but Pynchon was pushing on the noir genre and like turning it into a kind of a seventies thing in that book. And so I was just watching how he was doing it and, and trying to take it in other directions a little bit. Well, I can definitely believe that there's a lot to keep track of in this book because it's this really, really well realized future world. I guess I'll, I'll say for listeners, it's a very, it's a very near future. I think sort of seven years in the future or something like that. And um, just to give people an idea, these are some of the features of this world. You have a pot friendly, child free airline, 
uh, dental regrowth stem cell kits you can order, uh, neural-laced robo-jockeys racing camels, and augmented reality hotel ads where they give you these um, AR goggles and then um, it superimposes ads on the walls of your hotel room. And the longer you keep them on, the more uh, your uh, room gets discounted. Uh, That sounds like... I hope that's not already happening, but it sounds like it could be. Um, so, and and I I guess I should say, you know, you wrote these three books with Peter Diamandis, and I, I guess another book or two after that, just about what the future is going to be like. So it's almost like you um, did like 30 years of research uh, before you sat down and wrote this book. I'll tell you a funny story, true story. Peter and I were talking about the most recent book, which came out over Christmas, which is called The Future is Faster Than You Think. And Peter and I started talking about it and figuring it out before I wrote Last Tango. And I actually, because in what we do in Futures Faster Than You Think is we look at how technological convergences, so how accelerating line, what happens when AI meets robotics meets virtual reality, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, and we do, we look at every major industry on the planet and say, okay, we, this is, this is, these are the technologies converging on the industry. This is where it's going to, how it's going to change over the next 10 years. And it was easy up to that point to write about technology because I was, you can, what's the future of AI? It's just one thing. You can sort of follow it out and it's hard to wrap your head around, but you can do it. When you start bashing them together, like Peter and I needed to do in, in faster, I found it very, very, very hard to conceptualize this world. So I stopped researching faster and wrote Last Tango. And one of the reasons I wrote Last Tango was I wanted to take all the tech that I saw emerging over the next 10 years or so and put it into a world and put characters in that world and go live there for a little while so I could wrap the he- my head around what's actually coming. So at the end of the book, I say, you know, all the technologies in this book are either you know, they're either real already in the world, just not widely distributed. The robo jockeys, for example, those are real. They're not neural linked yet, but the robo jockeys are real. Um, and, uh, or stuff that's in labs. And the only exception is, is there's a, a futuristic, uh, psychedelic compound at the center of the book. And that's the only thing that I sort of made up from scratch. And even that, um, there are, I, I know underground chemists who are doing really strange things with psychedelics and animal consciousness. And I don't think they're anywhere close to what they're aiming towards. And I think they're out of their minds, but there are people playing with those kinds of ideas, even if I think they're crazy. And then were publishers pretty receptive to this sort of novel, the sort of near future high tech novel? Yeah, it was, I mean, cyberpunk, I, I, I wrote, so I, when I pitched it, I, you know, you normally, when you sell a novel, you never write a book proposal. I wrote a book, I wrote a book proposal for this one, not a chapter outline or anything else because they had the full book, but I was like, look, this is, you know, how I plan on, on marketing. This is why I think this book is, you know, there's an audience here. And what I was really focusing on was the fact that nobody is really writing really sort of high level literary cyberpunk anymore. Richard K. Morgan every now and then puts out a book, but he has moved deep farther and farther into the future, right? Most of the other people who are doing great cyberpunk have moved into much different branches of science fiction or, or Neil Gaiman, who has moved completely into fantasy, right? After Neverwhere, which was sort of the only thing that could have been maybe considered cyberpunk, Sandman a little bit. Um, 
he moved totally into fantasy. And Gibson is amazing, but he only puts out a book every couple, two, three years. And I just figured I, every time I went into a bookstore, I travel a lot and I would go through airport bookstores and the end of every trip, right? I've already read my textbooks or whatever, like my, my homework was for the trip. And I want something fun to read because I'm exhausted and I want to go home and I'm always in the sci-fi section and I'm always looking for, is there a new cyberpunk book that I haven't read? That's any good. And the the answer over and over and over is no, especially lately. Uh, I think there's, and I think there's reasons for it. I think it's harder and harder for people to wrap their head around the near term future, which is why I think we've seen such a massive fantasy revival, um, and why cyberpunk has sort of gone away a little bit as a genre. I think I think it's just really hard, and I think most people when they start to write cyberpunk now run into the exact same problem I ran into. And, you know, I had the advantage of having worked for wired and covered technology for 30 years and et cetera, et cetera. So I like, you know, I had a pretty good look at what was coming and even then it was hard. So it, it doesn't surprise me that there's not a lot of this, but I just figured there's a lot of people out there like me who got to be, you know, dying to read a new cyberpunk book every now and again. And I, you know, it turns out I was right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I heard. Yeah, I heard you say in a in an interview that you're always looking for more cyberpunk kind of stuff, and it's sort of vanishing from uh, bookstores, which I, I I definitely agree with. I mean, since this is my thing, I, I was trying to think of uh, if I could come up with any recommendations for you. Um, so I have a mm. little list here of things you, that are oh. kind of more near future cyberpunk. I don't know if you you might have read some of these already, but um, uh, the ones I came up with were uh, futuristic violence in fancy suits by David Wong, autonomous by Annalie Newitz, change agent by Daniel Suarez. The Quantum Spy by David Ignatius, Ghost Fleet by Peter W. Singer and August Cole, Robopocalypse by Daniel H. Wilson, After On by Rob Reed, and Rule of Capture by Christopher Brown. So, uh. Everett? Yeah, that's. Okay, so you got to send that to me because you went to. I'm trying to take notes, by the way. Oh, no, no, no. I'll, I'll email I've, it to you. <laughs> send it to me. I've read Autonomous, I've read After On, and, uh, there was one other in there that I think I had read, but there were, there's like five or six in there I've never heard of. Um, Quantum Spy, have no idea what that is. Fu the first one, Futurist Violence and the Suit something, something, yeah, whatever that's. Fancy Suit. That just sounds great. Whatever that is. Um, yeah, I absolutely want that. And, uh, oh, I just got somebody to Burke actually told me. So I'm a big fan of, uh, John Sanford's fiction. Um, as far as like just straight up thriller writing. And I, he, somebody just told me he wrote three sci-fi novels. So I've just, I've got those sitting on my shelf to start. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. I, I haven't read them, but, um, he, his publisher is advertised on this podcast. So I've kind of, I've read the uh, synopses. He's an amazing, amazing writer. He's just, I mean, he was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and he's just, his, his, his dialogue, especially later, his second half of his books, um, after he's been doing it for a little while, it's, he's just amazing. He's an amazingly talented writer. He's got some of the best characters in just thriller fiction in general. Um, and Burke said the books are a blast. He literally was like, you'll read them. You'll read each one in a night and you'll probably read all three in a row. All right, cool. Yeah, no, I'll definitely check those out. Um, so going back to the last tango, I thought one thing was interesting is that, and I, I didn't really make this connection consciously until I was a, I got to the part in the book where it mentions the Voight-Kampff test, which is the test that measures replicant empathy, um, empathy in um, in Blade Runner. But um, you know, empathy obviously is a huge theme in Last Tango, and obviously it's a huge theme in Blade Runner, um, especially the novel, where you know it's it's made very right. explicit that what differentiates the uh, the androids from humans is that they don't feel empathy. 
And I was just curious if you thought if you think if you think your book focuses so much on empathy, is that a Blade Runner um, influence, or is it just like this kind of story sort of inherently, um, you know, gravitates so, toward yeah, that, those that considerations? Was, that, that that was the question you didn't ask. I was, I still am, I think, but I was beyond obsessed with Blade Runner. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of times have I seen that that movie. I, I mean, I'm obsessed with Blade Runner. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, there's actually like three or four Blade Runner kind of references sort of woven through the Voight Cop, the Voight Cop machine is, you know, being the most obvious in that scene. Um, and actually that theme comes back in, in the follow up where a lot of the, you know, dunes, the Frank Herbert's dune is all the way through the book as well. And there's a, there's a bunch of sci-fi references woven as plot points. They're not like just little Easter eggs. They're, they're deep parts of the plot. Um, because my characters were sci-fi fans, um, as well, um, which sort of makes sense to me. <laughs> right. So you think so? It's a it's a Blade Runner um, influence. Well, it's a, Blade, think, it's a Blade Runner. Well, so it's a Blade Runner thing. But I so I part of my background. Most I mean, most what, what people know about me is either my work on flow or my work on technology. But I have worked equally as long on animal rights and environmental issues, and I've covered the environmental movement for a very long time. I wrote a book about the relationship between humans and animals. My wife and I run a dog sanctuary. Um, I'm, I've been very involved in that as a journalist. I, I was really involved in that. And empathy is a huge topic of discussion in kind of animal consciousness debates and has been for a really, really, really long time. So the question of empathy and do animals feel empathy and does empathy extend across species lines and all those kinds of things is really baked into kind of the animal welfare, animal rights world. So yes, I got it from Blade Runner, but because the book is really ultimately about kind of the relationship between humans and animals and, and the question of what is life and how do we define it? Um, that was, that was really, really important. Right. And I, you know, I was looking at the theme of the book being empathy for all you know, the, that I, I, when I talk about that, I talk about that as meaning like empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems, but it's becoming, you know, it's, it, it moves up and down the chain, right? At some point, we're going to, as Rob Reed sort of points out and after on, like you have to start asking questions about, you know, empathy for, uh, AIs, that sort of thing. And, I, you know, this is a true story. I, uh, I was on a, in a research meeting this morning for the Flow Research Collective, where we study peak performance, and we were talking about organelles, small mini brains grown from cell swabs, and we won't do any animal testing. And the question was raised, would we test on organelles, on mini brains, what if they're conscious? And nobody had an answer, but this was a real-life discussion that I had today. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I wanted to read this because this kind of blew my mind. This is from the novel. Um, one of the characters says, we know trees process information just as we do with neurochemicals, dopamine, serotonin. They have senses, take in data, integrate it, make decisions, send out defense chemicals, which sounds like an automatic response. But trees also practice altruism, form memories, and you can knock them out with human anesthetic. So how would you test for consciousness? How would you know? And uh, so you want to hear a funny story about that? Yeah, yeah sure. question. I was uh, at Singularity University. It was the first day that I was there 
and Peter and I were writing Abundance. And uh, Singularity University was on the NASA Ames campus. And uh, I had been off campus and was very stoned, which is <laughs> an everyday thing for me. But I was really, really stoned. And I came back in and I was sitting out in front of the NASA lodge at this picnic bench. And Andrew Hessel, who is one of the top synthetic biologists in the world, and right now he's running the Human Genome Right Project, I had met him the night before for a second and he walked up and I was literally watching wind blow into the trees, blow through the trees. And it looked, I was stoned. Remember, it looked <laughs> like the trees were playing with the wind and that's what it looked like to me. And I went, well, if they were enjoying it and not like being forced, or, like if this was actually play, could you measure it? How, if that was real, right? If I wasn't just having a stoner and Andrew walked up at that moment and I looked at him and went, Hey man, what's the Turing test for tree consciousness? And that was the beginning of our friendship. We became very, very close friends after that, but we literally sat there for two hours and tried to figure out what the Turing test for tree consciousness might be. I mean, do you think it might be the case in the future that, um, people don't kill plants because we've determined that they're conscious? So. There's a really interesting complexity biologist by the name of Stuart Kaufman who has really poked at the question harder maybe than anybody I've seen of like what is life and what produces consciousness and what are the bare necessities. And one of the things he points out is if you were kind of just to reduce consciousness to really basic survival functions, not gussy it up at all, you would need three things. You would need agency, the ability to make decisions. I'm going to go right or left. You would need some kind of memory so you can remember how, oh, I went left last time and, and there was food there or I went left last time and there were predators there. I don't want to do that again, right? You need some kind of storage system. And then you need some kind of signaling system so that when you encounter new information, the stuff in the storage system could help shape the decision in the present. Those three components are present everywhere, almost down, I mean, definitely down to the molecular level and, you know, possibly even below that, um, depending on how you want to think about quantum systems. And the, my, the point is, you know, it's turtles all the way down on a, on a certain level, perhaps, and it might be turtles all the way up too, which is why I think this question of empathy is really weird. Like, okay, so we go to plants next. Does it stop there? I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a different real, a real world example. This is a real research question that, that we've been having around the Flow Research Collective for a while now, which is you have a microbiome. All of us do. And there's roughly like your elbow to the tip of your finger worth of foreign bacteria, not human, not you, other in every human being, most of it living in your gut. And. We know the creatures in your gut can influence your emotions. They can influence your health, blah, blah, blah. But we ask the question in flow research, when we say flow is optimal performance, one of the things that we mean is all of our systems in our biological systems are performing together really, really well. They're optimal. They're working together as a coherent whole. But the question I, we were asking is, does optimal human performance actually mean that we need optimal performance from non-human creatures at the same time? Because if your microbiome isn't involved in optimal performance, it could impact really basic serotonin levels in the blood, things that, things that would have a really big impact downstream. 
Those are really weird questions. And, you know, you're one step away from agency questions and you're like four or five steps away from at least posing a rights question. I'm not saying I don't, I don't necessarily know if I have an opinion. That's the other thing about this. Like I'm a big believer that, you know, we should treat, you know, plants and animals and ecosystems with a great deal more respect and things along those lines. But I don't have answers to these questions. I just think they're fascinating questions. And every time our technology kind of evolves another level and we get better measurement technologies, we find more and more consciousness and more and more things. And that's, that's going to lead to a very unusual future. And that's sort of, you know, those were the questions I was trying to probe at. But once again, you know, I like Blade Runner. I don't necessarily know if there are exact answers here. I mean, speaking of the trees, that kind of reminds me, one of the characters in the book is working on a Lorax rap opera. And yes. that sort of sent me down a rabbit hole. I was like, I would watch that. That sounds really cool. So I, I Googled uh, Lorax rap. Have you done, have you done this? Do you know no. you what's on? Oh my God. There's a, there's Lorax rap. Yeah. I'm so there's this, now. there's this guy, uh, Wes Tank, where he raps different Dr. Seuss books. And oh, yeah. so I watched the one of the Lorax. It's pretty amazing. And then that somehow that kind of led me to the conservative Lorax. Have you seen the conservative Lorax? No. Oh, you're the most fun I've had all week. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let me just so no. so, so the conser- it's a college humor video where the Lorax comes back and he's become a convert, so sort of like supply side economics. And oh so God, I'll just awesome. I'll just give you a a little snippet here. He says well, that's just it, boy. You've said more than you knew. Needco is a person, and it has rights, too. It's not fair to keep <laughs> truffles for folks just like us when corporate entities love trees so much. That's really weird. <laughs> all guys are wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, the Laura, I, you know, Lorax, I think he, Dr. Seuss was good. Like, that was very, very, very effective propaganda for me as, like, a four-year-old kid animal lover. I got it right away. So do you do you think do you hope someone will do a Lorax rap opera? I absolutely, yeah. There's a there's a couple of operas, right? There's the the Apocalypse Now opera in there. I think these were all things that somebody should make. Um, would you? Uh, you mentioned you know that you're so interested in animals and everything, and um, the the book it brings up the prospect of human animal hybrids. Like there's something in the book. I don't know if this is real or not. Called the Cat Eye Open Source Project, where people want to sort of um, bioengineer cat eyes for themselves. That is so, yeah, all that stuff is real. Like the, the biohacker movement, there, there is like a punk rock kind of goth wing of the biohacker movement that's been around for a while. That, I mean, that like goes back to the 1970s or 80s. Um, sort of been there for a while and nothing was, nothing was possible, right? So that some of the vampire fang stuff emerged out of this as well. Um, it was all sort of mixed together. Now it's sort of splintered out, but there are people who are saying, okay, how do we regrow tails? How do we give humans, you know, non-humans eyes? And the, the question that I was asking was, I think this is, you know, this is just our next prejudice, right? There's going to be a keep humans pure movement. And it's just like, this strikes me as there's a, the scientists talk about the rebel instinct and it's, it's basically that like we're hardwired to rebel against our parents because it gets us away from our parents and away from our siblings. So it keeps variety in the gene code, right? So this plays out at cultural levels where you see kind of each generation 
tries to out-rebel the previous generation. So you get, you know, beatniks in the 50s into, uh, into hippies in the 60s, into, you know, and hippies were like funky clothes and long hair. And suddenly in the 70s with punk, it gets a little more real and people start piercing things. And by, you know, the 80s and the 90s, it's tattoos and those piercings have gotten huge. And then it's scarification and the ante just seems to go up and now it's body modification and biohacking and things like that. So the, the, the ante seems to go up with each generation and with the technology to do kind of human animal hybrid stuff. I just think that's just going to be a, just a punk rock thing and we're going to get it and it's going to just create an, a massive backlash. So are you going to be first in line for cat eyes? I had no, uh, probably not, but, um, there might be human performance benefits to like having different species eyes. Um, the human brain processes in information four times faster when we are uh, looking at, at things through our periphery, for example, weird eye fact. But uh, I wonder what would happen if you swapped out like a spe- dogs have um, 200, I think it's 280 degree vision. So it's, it's, a, 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 like a hundred degrees wider than humans or something like that. Um, so they see a much, they don't have, they, they don't see things very crisply, but it's very, very wide. Um, I wonder if that would end up amplifying brain processing speeds. I would ask those kinds of questions before I would go <laughs> get cat size. Yeah. Um, so one of the, the major features in the book is there's a religion based on, uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, Frank Herbert and Temple Grandin. And so I was just curious, how do you feel about that religion? And would you join that religion if it really existed? I might, I might join that religion. Yeah. I was looking at, uh, this was a, this was something that Frank Herbert saw coming. I call them poly tribes, but he saw very early on. I mean, this is not a new idea, but religions in general are mashups. And, uh, Herbert saw that mashing up religions together, right? He created the Fremen and Dune. And they were sort of like hardcore environmentalists, like American hard, hard left environmentalists from the seventies mixed with like Islamic militant kind of culture and a Zen Buddhist philosophy. And he just pushed them together into this one culture. Um, and I, you know, I think he saw the mashup coming and I, you know, that's how religions always get formed. But now, subculture gets formed so quickly because of the internet, like culture can shift so fast and things can form so quickly. I think we're going to get a lot of that. And I think we're going to start getting religions and that religion is as religion becomes more and more and spirituality becomes more not reduced, but like being, we can understand it through the lens of neuroscience and start saying, Hey, this particular tantric meditation system does this in the brain. That's why you have that particular experience. And, and we're going to get be able to tune our, our religions and our philosophies a lot more to the neurochemicals they'll produce and the experiences we want to have in a weird way. And so that's all got kind of cobbled together into that. That's not a simple answer, I know. <laughs> it's funny when you talk about Frank Herbert and religion, because I heard one time that um, after Dune came out, all these kind of young seekers would just show up at Frank Herbert's house wanting him to be their guru. And he was just like, get out of here. He he had no interest whatsoever. (laughs) Wow. Um, That must have been really, really strange. 
That's a fairly spec Dune, Dune is a fairly spectacular once in a generation kind of book. I thought it was interesting because uh, I don't know if we've said explicitly, but um, in your book, you have this concept called M trackers, which are people with really enhanced empathy abilities. And there's a point where the main character thinks that M trackers are kind of like the opposite of the Mentats in Dune. I thought that was yes. an interesting observation. And I don't, you know, it doesn't, none of this is all that far reaching. I was talking years ago to a geneticist who was talking about how this is also in the book. Um, and this is sort of where the idea started coming from. Geneticists years ago were talking about the fact that in Silicon Valley, people who were on the spectrum, who normally were outcasts in society, were suddenly highly prized, right, for their, their math skills, basically, and everything else, the social stuff, nobody cared about, right? Oh, my God, you can do amazing things with numbers. So people on the spectrum were starting to breed with other people on the spectrum. Like they were meeting at parties and like, you know, things were happening socially that weren't normally happening. And his point was, if this really keeps going in this way, it's not going to be long until they fracture the species. It doesn't take a whole lot to fracture a species, uh, which is not something, you know, we think about because there's only one species of human on the planet, but that really wasn't the case for most of history. So I was thinking about what does it take to fracture the species at the same time, when you work in animal welfare and animal rights, you meet people who are really, truly deep empaths and this, and the empathy crosses species lines and it, it's a, it's, it's a very, it's deep and they, they, they feel for animals and plants the way, you know, other people feel for children and it's like automatic hard wiring. And I was, I was, I was asking the same question. Well, if you've got that, that's gotta be possibly an epigenetic change. And I make the argument in small furry prayer that people who related better to animals were good for the tribe because we cohabitated with wolves. We evolved with wolves and we hunted with wolves and they were so integral to our survival and sort of the great leap forward. And we learned so many things from wolves as a species that there had to sooner or later people who got along better with animals rather than people would start getting coded in. And I just followed that out logically and said, okay, what happened if, what, if that's real, let's take it. What happens when they start interbreeding and, you know, you get these kind of empaths and it, you know, would it eventually produce a line of people who could have a, you know, a deeper kind of cross species empathy? Um, you know, their lion, the character's empathy is wider, right? It extends out. You can see how kind of cultures mash together as well or feel it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there was just like a couple of random things in the book. I was just kind of curious. So one um, character says just in passing uh, re refers to what's left of the Gates Foundation. And I was like, I was wondering what happened to the Gates Foundation in this future. I, well, I mean, remember, I also t I, like I, I also I mean, I gave uh, Verizon blended itself with Tesla in the future. Right. I have Tesla and Verizon as a corporation um, also. And that is just uh, based on. We know 40% of today's Fortune 500 companies are going to be gone in 15 years. They're just the turnover rate. So I, I think, you know, I, just like I, there are a lot of, and I, by the way, nothing's, I have no idea. You know what I mean? The Gates Foundation is fantastic, but I wanted to pick something that was, you know, less than obvious that you wouldn't necessarily see going away and make it go away. That was really where that came from. How about this thing? There's a reference to uh, the final um, book by Stephen King, which is a poetry collection called The Well-Hanged Man. 
Is that, is that yes. a joke or is there any more, anything total more joke. to say about that? Total joke. Total okay. joke. Yeah, that was just a total joke. That was the upsell in the bookstore. I literally, I was looking for something funny that if you heard it said, the, the, the guy who was speaking at that point has a little bit of an accent. I was just, I was like, what would sound in this situation? What would just sound funny in that accent? Yeah. Same thing with Tarantino's of blood. Tarantino's of blood. Well, that's got to be a thing, right? I mean, like, that's a metaphor that if you're a fan of his movies, you get immediately. <laughs> you know what that means, right? Who saw Kill Bill and, like, people bleed for a very long time. But so you think that's just going to be a common expression in the future? I guess it depends on how uh, how many books I use it in <laughs> and how well they do. Everyone listening, you got to help us make this Tarantino's a thing. Tarantino's a blood, folks. Tarantino's a blood. I also wanted to ask you about this line. So um, Lion thinks at one point, it's entirely possible that Gaia consciousness has become the new mega rich guy thing, like billionaires who used to become libertarian seasteaders. Oh, and, my God. So that go to Burning Man. That is, that is already a thing. So there were like three or four things that when I started writing the book, they were sci-fi fantasy ideas. And by the time the book came out, they were already real in the world. Um, I'll give you two examples. The, in, you just mentioned that Stephen King book in the, it's the next line in that book, right? It's a clerk trying to upsell him as he's leaving. It's, you know, it's like you go to the airport and they're like, well, have you, would you like mints? <laughs> and they were sort of like those kinds of things. And he offers him chocolate covered crickets. And I had a, a month and a half ago, I had a day where I had to go do an NPR interview. So I had to go to a local radio station and I went in and it's a conservative Christian talk radio station. And they're doing a report on the world's first robo brothel, which is also in last tango that opened in Houston. And I leave the station after my interview and I stop at a gas station on a, on, on, a, on a reservation and as I'm leaving and paying for my gas and, and buying whatever I was buying that day, the clerk points and she said, would you like some sour cream and onion crickets with that? And I looked at her and then realized she was pointing at a real thing that was next to the cash register that was dried crickets with sour cream and onion sauce on them. And I went from a robo brothel to the, like the freeze dried cricket upsell, two things that were in my book were now in my world. And it was eight months later or nine months later. So there was a bunch of that. So I think the guy of consciousness, when I started the book, that wasn't a thing. By the time I was done, it was a thing. I've heard that if everyone started eating insects, it would save the world. I don't know. You, you might know. You might be, have an informed opinion about that. They're a phenomenally sustainable source of protein. And, they're, and they, really, they are really spreading into people's diets. Um, for sure. Do you have an opinion about seasteading? Because, you know, a couple of years ago, I interviewed this guy, Joe Quirk. He's the head of the Seasteading Institute. I, know, I read his book. I... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, you know, I, I, I know Joe. Um, I've known Joe for a while. Um, I met him when he started Voice and Exit uh, in, in Austin, which is an event he used to produce still. Um, and I like I like him. I like some of the seasteading ideas. Um, and we write two pages about seasteading in the future is faster than you think. 
where it seems incredibly viable is not, I mean, for, you know, and they're, they're doing real work in the world, right? They're, the Seasteading Institute, Joe, Joe's foundation, I, I think they're actually building their first mini colony in Tahiti right now. I think that's, that's already real. There's a couple other things that are, are going forward. The UN, which had dismissed the idea for years as sort of nonsense, got on board with it about a year ago and said, Hey, wait a minute. This is actually, a, we're going to need this for climate change. And, all you have to do is sort of look at the maps of just look at the map of any major American coastline uh, with two degrees of warming or four degrees of warming, which is business as usual today. Like that's where we're headed. And you swatches of, you know, 20 million inhabitants of America are going to be displaced. And one way to kind of deal with this is to build floating prime real estate off the coast of already prime real estate. And that seems like that stuff is going to start happening more than I think, you know, libertarian colonies in the middle of nowhere. I think that was a Silicon Valley fantasy a little bit. Yeah, I mean, because the um, yeah, I feel like the, I, the idea just seems cool to me. I don't know a lot about it, but I mean, I feel like it gets dismissed maybe because of the libertarian uh, connotations. But from the book, I mean, most of the arguments in favor were ecological in nature. And so they're, it seems yeah, they're really totally ecological in nature. And it's. The other thing is the technologies we, you know, we open futures faster than you think. This is a technology I actually left out of, uh, last tango. I left a couple of technologies out. Blockchain is only in there for a line because I could not really get my head around how it was going to weave through society over the next 10 years. So there's certain technologies I left out, including flying cars. The flying cars are here. There's a hundred different flying car companies. Every major aerospace manufacturer is involved. Every, Single car company has a line. Toyota just put 400 million into Joby Aviation, which built a, a quadcopter drone that scaled up to humans. So like this is happening. Uber wants flying car taxis in LA, Dallas, Dubai by like 2023. Once we have flying cars, transportation to seasteading colonies goes way up. Once we have drone delivery services, which are, you know, now really taking, taking off, pardon the pun. Because of COVID nineteen, uh, the a lot of the a lot of logistic stuff starts to go away, and the technological problems get solved, and then it starts getting really interesting. And there are, as you pointed out, the green reasons to do this are phenomenal. I mean, I heard uh, Peter Demandis say that um, you know he's expecting, if I have this right, something like a thousand years of progress in the next hundred years. It was something like that. So. Um, uh, it's so no, it's it the it's Ray Kurzweil, who's the head engineering at Google and wrote the Singularity is near and is Peter's partner in SU, uh has done all kinds of technological predictions based on exponential growth curves of technology. And by his numbers, and Ray has very rarely missed. So by his numbers, we're gonna experience roughly a hundred years of technological change by the end of the decade, and by the end of the century we will experience roughly 20,000 years worth of technological change. So that's birth of agriculture, the industrial revolution twice over the next 80 years. And what you got to stop and go, okay, this guy has never missed, but let's say this time he is off by 500%, a thousand. I mean, what is it like? It's still 
more technological change crunched into a smaller period of time than ever before in history, um, which is sort of, you know, Last Hang was a little bit of a book about how technology shapes culture, that same question we started when we first started talking. And that speed of acceleration is one of the things I'm interested in. And the reason is, like, if you're old enough to remember the world pre-internet, it wasn't just that it was a different world. It felt different. It was much more isolated. Culture spread much more slowly. I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and our culture would come in, and we had more culture than most of the Midwest because of our nearness to New York, but it would show up three years later, and it wouldn't show up. It would show up blended together. So, like, I was in Ohio during the punk rock movement, and if you go to every major city, there was straight-edge movement was going on in D.C., and there was a different thing going on in the West Coast and the East Coast. None of these tribes liked each other. But by the time you get to Cleveland, Ohio, all that doesn't matter anymore because it's all been massively diluted because culture moves so slowly, and it became something different at the time. So the speed of kind of technological and cultural transmission is really tightly linked. The world felt different after the Internet happened. It felt even more different after things like apps happened and social media happened. The texture of how life felt, what it feels like to be alive changed. And that's the thing I'm trying to get at in the book a little bit, that it's not just the scenery that changes, it's the inside. It's how we are on the inside that also changes. What I was going to ask, though, is um, if the um, do you think the COVID is going to um, cause any hiccups in that exponential growth or is this just going regardless? Oh, I, I well, here's what I think what I've said. Um, I'm not the only person who's saying this, but I mean, the, I, I said this to Peter. We were so we were in uh, we were in New York launching the future is fast. And you think on the day the COVID story broke, the day the Chinese the Chinese told the world that, that this was real. And um so we were we were watching it kind of from the front lines, and we started answering COVID questions a lot earlier than I think most people, just because we happened to be on TV that day, and it was going on. And we started talking about it at the end of the day, and I said, you know, if this is real and it, you know, it, it grows exponentially, and it, you know, it is what it sounds like. I, you know, we just wrote a book called "The Future Is Faster Than You Think," but I think the future is going to be faster than we thought, and that's what we're seeing. All right? They were so the. Claire's in the book, we talk about the reinvention of healthcare and we talk about where it's going and what's happening and it's going to take 10 years to get there. And I will tell you that we've, what we're predicting is going to happen in 10 years is now looking like it's going to happen in close to two because of COVID. Same acceleration will happen in virtual reality for sure. And a good couple other ones. Um, I heard, uh, who was I taught? Salim Ismail, um, who uh, was the original uh, executive director of Singularity University and wrote a really interesting book uh, called Exponential Organizations and another innovation expert. He said he, he feels like there are six different Gutenberg moments, meaning print and press size revolutions, happening all at once right now because of COVID. And I think that's probably accurate. I mean, certainly there's stuff that's going to lag behind. Uh, but, I mean... You know, if you read our future of shopping chapter, right, Amazon Go is talked about and, and the sort of the, the vanishing of cashiers. And we said that was going to unfold over a certain period of time. I don't know if you know this, but the day after there were zero fatalities in China from COVID, they went and they 3D printed 
a cashierless grocery store uh, in a day. So they literally like went in and create, created a 3D printed supermarket, fully stocked, no cashiers, completely AI driven. And it went up in a day and opened. That's the kind of thing. Like we, we thought those kinds of changes would unfold over a decade, but now we're doing them in a day and we have a reason to do them in a day. So some of the technologies, um, are, um, moving a little slower. The, or I mean, a, a lot faster than we possibly imagined. Well, you know, I, I had not heard about the the 3D printed uh, automatic grocery store. Yeah, it's I don't know. Amazing. I don't know if it's Wind. So Wind Sun is is the famous Chinese company that they printed. They started with uh, houses, right? They were doing they were doing like single family homes, four or five of them in a day. Then they did an apartment building over a weekend. Uh, I've got another friend, Brett Hadler, who's got a company called News Story that we write about in, in Faster, who is 3D printing entire hundred home villages, uh, in three months. And they're actually doing them. Uh, the first one is Mexico City is being built right now. And it's, uh, these are communities for the poor. So the homes are being built for like six to $10,000 or something. And most of them are, are being donated. And then the rest is being sold to people, but at a, for a no interest lifelong loan, basically. So pennies a month kind of thing. So that's already going on. So we've, we've seen all that stuff in the Chinese a couple of years ago. I think that I want to say it was a 29 story skyscraper that they put up in three weeks using modular construction and 3D printing blended together. Um, so this stuff is going on. This was really fast, but this has been happening for a while. Wow. So unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. But just to wrap things up, uh, first, I just want to mention that I heard you say in an interview that you uh, you would love to write a Blade Runner prequel. Oh, so my God. I just want to throw that out there. If there are any movie producers uh, listening to this, you know, by the uh, way, Stephen's it's not just me. Mic. Yeah, Stephen and Andrew Hessel, the synthetic biologist I talked about. We've been talking about this idea for a while because he asked a really good question. What's Tyrell's origin story? Who was Tyrell? That that was the that was the question that started it. Yeah, so I, I hope I hope that happens. Uh, we'd love to see. I mean, I loved Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I love Blade Runner, obviously. So you know, I, I think a prequel would be awesome. It would and, be great. Uh, you mentioned that you um you have a, you're working on a sequel to Last Tango. Uh, yep. Is there anything that you can say about that? Uh, it's called The Devil's Dictionary, and it uh we talked earlier about the Keep Humans Pure movement. Let's just say that, uh, that becomes a, a, a bigger, a bigger theme. The eco themes are, are bigger. I will also say that I'm really trying to figure out how to write a little bit more of a user friendly, reader friendly cyberpunk book. I think Last Tango is, is a lot of fun, but I think it's a little bit of work for people and I'm trying, I'm trying to get that right. Do you have any idea when, uh, when that might be out? It's going to be done in, uh, July and so it'll be out in 2020. I don't know where, but it'll be out in 2020. I'm publishing a different book in January 2020 on peak performance. So I'm guessing the publishers are going to want to split them up and publish this one in the summer. So probably summer 2020. Oh, wow. Coming right up. Yeah. Soon. Um, all right, cool. So the, so do you have any other just final thoughts or anything else that you wanted to mention? Well, please send me that, those lists of cyberpunk books for sure. And no, I just want to thank you for what you do and thank you for your interest. 
All right. Yeah, great. So we've been speaking. I will definitely, I'll definitely send you that list uh, right after the call. But so we've been speaking with Stephen Kotler about his new book, Last Tango in Cyberspace. So Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Stephen Kotler for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Simon & Schuster for sponsoring today's show. Pick up their new book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram by Sarah Fryer, wherever books are sold. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.